0: Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 145, Tis Mystery All, The Immortal Dies. This episode of the Trinity's Podcast is a talk that I gave at the 2016 Theological Conference sponsored by the Restoration Fellowship near Atlanta, Georgia, in April 2016. In it, I pursue this simple line of thought, God can't die, but Jesus did, so Jesus isn't God. Should we think that this is a sound argument or an unsound argument? Is there a good reply, a good rebuttal to this argument, or not? In the previous two episodes of the Trinity's podcast, episodes 143 and 144, we heard a philosopher trying to go all the way and give a fully Catholic understanding of Jesus. In this episode, I'm trying to take a consistent radical Reformation approach. As you'll hear, the conclusions are somewhat different. And in the current climate, my point of view is rarer than his. I take the minority view that the true nature's traditions in small-c Catholic thinking about Jesus conflict with the Bible. And so when the teachings of Jesus and his apostles conflict with later speculations, I have to go with Jesus and the apostles. When I gave this talk, I hadn't yet had a chance to read Dr. Paul's excellent and carefully argued book, but hopefully I'll have a chance to interact with his perspective at a later date. So as Monty Python would say, and now for something completely different. You get to be the judge. I would urge you to be a good Berean, and actually look it up and see if it ain't so. You don't have to, but if you want to follow along with the slides I used in this presentation, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org, where you can click through the whole presentation as I'm talking. Without further ado then, over to me. My title is, "'Tis Mystery All, The Immortal Dies." Well, that's a beautiful turn of phrase, isn't it? By Charles Wesley from his famous hymn, And Can It Be? But we need to ask a question about it. Is it a mystery that we should believe and celebrate, or is it nonsense? Is it a contradiction? You shouldn't believe contradictions because contradictions are false. Now, not everything that appears to be a contradiction really is one. So if I say, I'm tired and I'm not tired, That might sort of sound like a contradiction, but I probably just mean something like, I'm a little bit tired, but I'm not really tired. So that's a merely apparent contradiction, which is true. It could be true. Oh, I'm I'm doing fine this morning, actually. But it could be true that I am tired and not tired, if that means that I'm a little bit tired, but I'm not a lot tired. So it looks contradictory, but it isn't really contradictory. On the other hand, sometimes if it looks like a duck, walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, it really is a duck. If it looks like a contradiction, it may really be a contradiction. What do I have against contradictions? Just that they're false. And I want to believe things that are true and avoid believing things that are false. So I don't want to believe something that's false. So what about this statement? Jesus, an immortal being, died. Is it a mystery that merely appears to be a contradiction, or is it really a contradiction, in which case nobody should believe it? I'm going to set up this whole issue as an inconsistent triad. This is one technique that philosophers use to think critically through some issue. I'm going to give you three statements, and they cannot all be true, just as a matter of logic. You can believe any two of them, but then you have to deny the third one. So the first one is Jesus died. Second one is, Jesus was fully divine. I'll tell you what I mean by that in a second. Third one is, no fully divine being has ever died. And what do I mean by fully divine? Just divine in the way that the one God is divine. If you want to put that in terms of having a divine nature or having all the divine attributes or having the divine essence, whatever. Okay, That's what I mean by fully divine. Now, if you just look at these for a second, convince yourself that it it really is an inconsistent triad. so if you accept one and two, Jesus died and Jesus was fully divine, then three is false. It's false that no fully divine being has ever died. How about if we take two and three? If it's true that Jesus is fully divine and it's true that no fully divine being has ever died, then it's false that Jesus died. And there's only one other combo. Take the top and the bottom, deny the one in the middle. Jesus died and no fully divine being has ever died. Then it's false that Jesus was fully divine. So what this does is it just you know, sets up a problem for you. Now maybe you say I already have a solution to this. Not everybody does and not everybody agrees about what the solution to it is. In other words, which one you should get rid of. But let me see if I can tighten the knot just a little bit. Why would you believe each of these three? You would believe the first one that Jesus died because it's explicitly taught in the New Testament and not just once or twice. Why would anybody believe the second one? Well, there are these traditional arguments that Jesus has to be fully divine. Arguments from worship, that he forgives sins, that he provides atonement, that he has titles like God and Lord, things like that. Only a fully divine being could be properly worshiped. Only a fully divine being would be, have the authority to forgive sins. Only a fully divine being would be able to provide atonement for the sins of humanity. Only a fully divine being could be called God and Lord and so on. Why would anybody believe the third? Because it's implicit New Testament teaching that immortality is an essential divine attribute. And if immortality is an essential divine attribute, then it must be true that no fully divine being has ever died. Immortality just means can't die. So what are we supposed to do about this? We can't believe all three of them. It's not obvious to everybody which one should be denied. Well, let's try out this one. This one, I think, occurs to some people. I don't think people usually say it if they're well-informed Christians, but I think some people think it. And it's interesting. I think we need to rule it out. What if we deny the first one on the grounds that dying is being annihilated? But Jesus wasn't annihilated. He still exists. Maybe he went to Hades and freed the spirits in prison, or uh, he did something in between death and resurrection. Uh, What about that idea? If dying is being annihilated uh, and Jesus wasn't annihilated, would that be grounds to deny that Jesus died? Well, now this is where I'm going to philosophize a little bit. I want to ask, what does it mean to say that Jesus died, or that anybody died? Now. I have to make clear, I'm analyzing the concept of death. I'm not asking you what is the true doctrine about death. I'm analyzing the concept of death that everybody has, whether they believe in afterlife or not. If you say that someone has died, it doesn't mean that they have been annihilated, that, that they uh, no longer exist. They've been knocked out of existence. One who believes all the dead go immediately to heaven agrees that the person in the casket is dead. So maybe you believe that a person is annihilated when they die or or take your your standard naturalist person who's an atheist and thinks the natural world is all there is naturalist and the christian who believes that everybody goes immediately to heaven or hell those two people are standing in front of grandma's casket and look they don't disagree about whether grandma's dead she's dead However, one of them thinks that that also implies that she doesn't exist, and the other one thinks that she still does exist. But they both agree that she's dead, and it's coherent to suppose that somebody is killed or somebody has died, and yet they still exist. That's not a contradiction to say that someone dies but still existed. So that shows you that it's not part of the concept of death that everybody has, that dying is ceasing to exist. What is the concept? You might think it's something like this. To say that someone has died means that their biological life processes have ceased. This is close, but I don't think it's quite right. Imagine that God kills an angel. He just decides this angel's smarting off one day, and God says, I'm going to strike that guy dead, Right? just like he did to Ananias and Sapphira. And boom, strikes the angel dead, but the angel still exists. I don't know, there's some kind of non-physical corpse. I'm supposing here that an angel is not a physical being in any sense. Okay. Could you kill a non-physical being, a being that doesn't have any biological life processes? Conceptually, yeah, it, it makes sense. There's no contradiction in saying that God killed a non-physical being. Okay, well then, it's not implied by the concept of dying that your biological life processes have ceased. But this is close. But one more point is you have to ask how many life processes have ceased, This concerns your normal living processes, thinking, seeing, hearing, walking, talking, sleeping. You can lose some of those and not be dead. Now, if somebody loses a lot of their functions, you might say they're most of the way dead. And dead is a vague concept. Sometimes it's not clear whether a person's all the way dead or not. But it looks to me like you need to say that all or most of the things, normal life processes, have ceased. Something like that. And normal is defined relative to what sort of being it is. So it's one thing for a human to die. It's another thing for a tree to die. It's another thing for a flea to die. Whatever those normal life processes are, they would have to cease. And then we would say it's dead. That's just what it means to say that it's dead. And if an angel can die, which I don't know if they can, but what that would be was for whatever the angel's normal life processes are, they would would come to an end, all or most of them. Now, why do I say normal life processes? I do think it matters what kind of being we're talking about. And I thought of this example from Daniel, the example of Nebuchadnezzar. So to paraphrase the story briefly, he has a moment kind of like the guy in Titanic when he's at the front of the ship. You know, He basically says, I'm king of the world. And God says, oh yeah, I'm going to take you down. And uh, God strikes him down. And he, he says he kind of lives this ox-type life. So did he lose his human life? Well, he lost some of his human life, right? He lost his rationality, his ability to walk upright, maybe, his ability to talk. He lost some of his life functions, but not all of them. You know, he could still eat and excrete and crawl around on all fours. That's not much of a life. It's kind of a crummy, squeezed-down life. But he wasn't killed all the way. So this is the kind of transition you have. There's a normal human life. Then he has this diminished ox-like life where he's gone crazy. Then he gets restored to human life again. Now think about that second transition. Is that a death when he goes from the diminished ox life to back to full human life? He did lose a life there, he lost his ox life. But not really, right? Really he gained back the fullness of his normal life. So nobody considers that second transition to be a death. Why? because it's a restoration of his full normal life, that is, full human life. Why why is this guy talking about Nebuchadnezzar? Okay, here's the uh, analogy that I'm making. Think about the eternal divine logos, traditional Catholic theorizing. So there's this eternally generated divine spirit. It always existed, and then it becomes incarnate. So it has its normal life, its divine life. Then it has this very diminished human life, Oh, now he's not all-powerful for a while, or he's not all-knowing. Anyway, he's not manifesting the same kind of glory and authority that he had before. But in some sense, it's an diminished life, right? If you think that's what kind of being Jesus was, then when he dies on the cross and he gets freed from the body, you think he's just being restored to his normal life. And so you're going to be tempted to say, well, he didn't die at all. If a human got crucified, yeah, that would be the human dying, right? Because... You cease breathing, you assume room temperature. But when this guy died, well, he was essentially divine. He wasn't essentially a human because there was a time when he wasn't human. If you're essentially something, you have to be that way at all times at which you exist. Okay, so the point of this analogy is that transition is not a death. This is a problem for the Logos theory, that it makes this transition not look like a death. But let's be serious here, people we cannot deny that jesus died it's all over all the gospels the book of acts the preaching in the book of acts all the epistles this is just a complete non-negotiable jesus really died anytime in the history of mainstream christianity when anybody came along and said jesus didn't really die they said no that's not right the apostles taught that jesus died okay so let's put that one in bold type shall we let's not deny that one That one should be off the table. It's really a contest between the second one and the third one. I'm gonna argue now that I think the third one should be put in bold print as well. No fully divine being has ever died. Because I do think it's clearly implied by scripture. It's not proclaimed 100 times like the death of Jesus. It's proclaimed a few times. And I think it's really theologically required once you start thinking about what kind of being God is as well. So here's one place that says that God is immortal. 1 Timothy 1.17, to the king of the ages, Immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever. And the word that's translated immortal just means imperishable, uncorruptible, indestructible. It means can't die. Literally, it's deathless. But the idea is, uh, it's not just that it happens to die, but it can't die. It's not subject to those forces that tear us down. Same book, sixth chapter. Paul writes, in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, I charge you to keep the commandment until the manifestation of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the right time, he being God. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, it is he alone who has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. This says that God is immortal also, and it uses a different word here, but the meaning seems to be about the same. And that word alone, I think, is going to be important. You have to ask the question, is it possible that an immortal being dies? All right, well, what if somebody asks, is it possible that Superman gets beat up by a four-year-old girl? Now, you want to say no to that, right? (laughs) Because he's Superman. But if he loses his superpowers, that could happen. So you know, somebody hides some kryptonite in his underwear, and then he's just (laughs) barely dragging himself along the floor. A four-year-old girl might come along and just beat him unconscious, right? So yeah, he could get beat up by a four-year-old girl if he loses his normal powers. So if we ask, can you kill an immortal being, or can an immortal being die? Not while they're immortal, because immortal means can't die. But if the being loses their immortality, then they can die. There are myths, uh, I'm sure, in other religions, like Hinduism, where an immortal being somehow gets tricked, and they lose their immortality, then they get killed. That's OK, because they get brought back to life. Right? So There's nothing incoherent about that story. That's my point. If you lose your immortality, then you can die, even though you were immortal earlier. OK. This is something, though, that is incoherent, to say that an essentially immortal being dies. Now essential doesn't mean anything heavy here, it just means that the feature is one that the thing can't lack. See, most of your features can come and go. You could get gray hair, you can get rid of the gray hair, right, to get some of that just for men stuff. You can gain 20 pounds, you can lose 20 pounds. You can get smarter, you can get stupider, and you'll still exist, right? But you couldn't change just any of your properties. Arguably that you're human is essential to you. Arguably that you have the ability to be conscious is essential to you. So you couldn't be turned into a potato or a rock or a tree or a planet. Things change in a lot of different ways, but they can't change in just any old way. That is to say that some features things have they can't lack. In philosophy, those are called essential features or essential attributes. So it's contradictory to say that an essentially immortal being has died. If a being is essentially immortal, they must be immortal at all times at which they exist. And when a being is immortal, you cannot kill that being. That being cannot die. So The question is, does the Bible teach that God, it surely teaches that God is immortal. We just saw that explicitly, right? But does it teach that God is essentially immortal? I think it does. And here's the most obvious reason. That passage we just looked at says the Father alone has immortality. Now think about this. This was written after the resurrection of Jesus. Was he immortal at that point, Jesus? Yeah. He was raised to immortality. He was given an incorruptible resurrection body. It would be false to say that the Father, which is who is meant here when it says God, it would be false to say that the Father alone has immortality when there's somebody else that has immortality. Okay, but they didn't mean just any old kind of immortality. He must have meant essential immortality. If we're saying God is essentially immortal, like he's immortal and can't not be immortal, yes, there is only one of those, eternally so. But if it was just plain immortality, not essential immortality, That would be false because God is immortal, but he raised Jesus and made Jesus immortal. Okay, so he just He must mean, if we read him as consistent, he must have in mind essential immortality. He didn't just quite put it that way, but that must be what what was meant. I think God's immortality is assumed by all biblical authors, just they don't usually state it. I think the authors of the Old Testament and the New Testament would agree that surely God never gained immortality where is that story, right? He discovers some magical elixir, do some magic ceremony. Like, I mean, there's all kinds of stories in mythology about beings gaining immortality, right? But not Yahweh. There's no story like that, no true story like that. I would think they assume that he, he will never lose it either. What's he gonna do? Like make a mistake and forget about it, or get tricked out of it, or you know, kryptonite? No, there is no such thing. There's no way to reduce God's power or to, to change His divine attributes. So I think just be, He's the uncreated Creator. He's perfect in Himself, and if He's eternally immortal, past, present, and future, they're assuming it doesn't just happen to be that way. It's not just a oh, whew, sure, I'm glad it turned out that way. No, it's because he can't not be that way. Immortality is essential to him. There's one more reason. I think that if you're going to think a little bit more systematically as a Christian, and you think about God's attributes, essential immortality is implied by some of the other essential attributes. If God is essentially omnipotent, that means that every time that God exists, he can do, in some sense, he can do everything, or he has the greatest kind of power. Now when you're dead, you've lost some of your powers, or maybe all of them. So if you are essentially omnipotent at all times, you, can, you have this massive power, right? Then you must be alive at all times, and essentially so. Because at a time when you're dead, you're not gonna be omnipotent. So omnipotence, essential omnipotence implies essential immortality. I think aseity does as well, this is the idea that God has his existence and perfections independently of any other being. So then, one of his perfections is that he's alive. You know, he didn't get this from anybody, he doesn't need oxygen, he doesn't need food, he doesn't need a good night's sleep. His life is not dependent on any factors like that, and so it looks like we have to say that he's alive and he couldn't not be alive. It makes no sense to suppose that God is not alive. Alright, now maybe that seems like it's belaboring the obvious to you but we're in a tough fight here. We're trying to figure out which of those three to get rid of. Now, at this point in my talk, I'm sure some people are saying, dude, two natures, what's wrong with you? Now, I know that it's very popular for people to suppose that two natures doctrine somehow will solve this problem for us. It will tell us uh, either how to harmonize the three statements or show us which one to deny. But saying that it's so doesn't make it so. We need to ask, well, how does this solution work? The basic idea seems to be something like this. A being can at the same time both die and not die relative to different natures. Die and not die at the same time, but relative to different natures. Okay, what does this mean? I got a couple tries here. How about we say Jesus died relative to his human nature and then two, we leave the same. Jesus was fully divine and three, No fully divine being has ever died relative to his divine nature. Now, what is the point about introducing natures here? The point of introducing natures is that these three don't look like they're obviously inconsistent anymore. The original set I gave you was just obviously inconsistent. I walked you through all the three combinations. If you assume any two of them, the third one is just false. just obviously as it is implied, right? This set of uh, statements is not like that. If you assume any two, it's not clear if the last one can be true or not. But that solution comes at a really high price, which is it's totally unclear what one and three mean now. What does it mean to say that he died relative to his human nature? I know what it is to die. I've seen dead people. I kind of know what to expect. I mean, it could go down in bad ways and less bad ways. It's always bad. I don't know what it is to die relative to a human nature. I've not encountered this in reality. I don't know anybody else that has. So it looks like it's just a verbal solution at this point. We introduced these extra words so that these things were not obviously inconsistent anymore. But it looks like that's all we've done. We've just added words. Okay, but we're not out of tries. There's always more tries, right? If you don't understand my point that it's unclear what one and three mean, how about these three? Jesus, blah, blah, blah. Second statement, Jesus was fully divine. Third statement, no fully divine being has ever blah, blah, blah. Now, right? If you accept one and two, does, does it follow that three is false? We don't know what it means, right? If you accept two and three, does it follow that one is false? No, that's the point, that it's taking away the apparent inconsistency, but it's taking away the apparent inconsistency at too high a price. How about this? What if we say Jesus' human nature died, Jesus was fully divine, and the third is no fully divine being has ever died relative to his divine nature. Now, this one's pretty popular, Out of people who are going to bring up the idea of two natures and say, well, that just obviously makes these problems go away, this is probably what they're thinking of. The thing is, it follows that his human nature is a human being. How does that follow? Okay, you said the human nature died. What kind of death were you talking about? Like the death of a mole? The death of a pine tree? It was a human death, right? What's a human death? It's the cessation of a human life. It's when all or most of your human life processes have come to an end. That's what a human death is, right? What kind of being can undergo all the normal human life processes? A human being. Okay, so if you're saying that the human nature died, it looks like that implies that the human nature is a human being. Now, there's just a problem here if you're defending the two natures view and the other nature is the divine nature, that's this eternal Logos, now you've got two selves running around in what look like one person. You know, it's kind of like a demon-possessed person now, but it's a Logos-possessed person. There's a human being with a human mind there, and then there's also this spirit. Somehow they cooperate or something. Now, this view was considered. Various people floated it in early mainstream Christianity, and they, I think, correctly rejected it. There are not two selves in Jesus. They called this Nestorianism. If you're one of those people that likes to throw around heresy labels, just jump up and yell, Nestorianism! (laughs) And that's how you refute this. But that's not how I refute it. I don't really like just this lazy label slapping. What's terrible about it is you can't read the New Testament in this way. You know, Jesus doesn't like talk in one voice and then talk in another voice so that you realize there's really two speakers there. He doesn't flip a switch where there's a sign above his head, you know, this is the divine one, now it switches back to the human one. He's one character in all the stories and in all the preaching about him later. There's one Jesus, there's one person there. And so... What this is saying is that there were really two cells there. One of them died and one of them lived on. Wait a second, that first part's wrong. No no Christian should want to say that. Who or what died on the cross, according to the New Testament? pretty clear about this. I'm not even going to waste your time with all the references. New Testament answer is that the man Jesus died, the Christ, the Son of God. The New Testament does not say that it was a part of the man that died. Like the human part. It doesn't say it was one of his two natures, but not the other one. It doesn't say that Jesus as human died, whatever that might mean. All right, but human speculation dies hard. There's always different ways we can try to parse this. We've gone through two unsuccessful tries, but we got more tries. We are Christian philosophers. How about this? What if we say Jesus died in his human nature? Jesus was fully divine, and no fully divine being has ever died in his divine nature. Now, what is going on here? The idea with the two natures' defense is that there's an ambiguity when you talk about death. In my original inconsistent triad, it said, Jesus died, and then the third one was, no fully divine being has ever died. And what they're saying is, aha, you have an ambiguous term there, death, or dying. If you remove the ambiguity, then it turns out that those three are consistent with one another, and they're not an inconsistent triad after all. All right, but how does this introducing talk about nature's remove the ambiguity? One way it might remove the ambiguity is it might disambiguate the predicate term. So we're talking about Jesus here, but what we're saying happened to him was not just that he died, but instead that he died in his human nature. Whereas, divine being never is such that he's died in his divine nature. We're changing one predicate, died, to two predicates. Died in divine nature, died in the human nature. And that's the point of the distinction. That's one way to take this. All right, back to this problem again. It's unclear what the amended statements mean. I don't know what it is to die in a human nature. I know what it is to die. I don't know what it is to deny that no one's ever died in their divine nature because I don't know what it is to die in a divine nature. It looks like it's just words. tries. What if we disambiguate the subject term? Not the predicate, not the uh, description, but the subject. We say there's an ambiguity there. Then we can come up with arguably consistent statements. So you would get, Jesus in his human nature died, and then Jesus was fully divine, and no fully divine being in his divine nature has ever died. Now, I, I put all those hyphens there just to help you understand that the subject is being qualified. And that is exactly the problem. So their idea is that Jesus and his divine nature never died, but Jesus and his human nature died. And they're suggesting that the ambiguity in the original sentences was in the subject term. What's the subject term? Jesus. The problem is there are two beings here. If you introduce a second subject, you're talking about two different subject matters, two different beings. One of those beings died. That was Jesus in his human nature. Here's another being, Jesus in his divine nature. That being didn't die. We need to maybe check our vision here. Are we seeing double? How many Jesuses are there? Yeah. And again, mainstream Christianity, quite correctly, as soon as somebody comes along and says there's a difference between Jesus and the Christ, or a difference between Jesus and the Son of God, they generally speaking have run screaming from that because in the New Testament, these are all terms that refer to the same one, to the same self. Jesus, that's referring to the Son of God. The Messiah, the Christ, those are all titles of one and the same being. Say you're good buddies with the president, you could call him a lot of different things, right? You could call him uh, Mr. Obama, Mr. President, call him Barry if you know him from way back call him Barack you'd call him a whole bunch of different things but it's all referring to the same being right that's how it is with all these titles of Jesus in the Bible there's there's just one guy there one self not two now this two natures business there's no end of theorizing about this I have to tell you I can give you some good news the good news is that Christian philosophers have worked really hard on this And what they're doing is they're kind of delineating all these dead ends. There are some very good discussions by Roman Catholic philosophers or Anglican or Episcopal or Evangelical philosophers. And generally speaking, they tend to go like this. Two natures. Hmm, what does that mean? Well, that could mean this or this or this or this. Well, this doesn't work and that doesn't work and this doesn't work and that doesn't work. How about this maybe? That's how they usually go. They're usually like, well, maybe this? And it's usually something that's unique to them, and other people would vehemently deny it. But the interesting part is, you know, they're knocking down all of the options like I just did. I didn't go through all of them, because I like you. (laughs) And because I don't have that long. But there are sources you can read where they, in any way these could possibly be parsed, this language, they've gone through it. And there's a kind of wrecking ball process here. Honestly, I just think they don't work. I don't think any of them work, and I don't have a pet um, interpretation that I think works. So just to mention some of the disputes among people who take this seriously, some would say that the two natures of the incarnate Christ are properties of the incarnate Christ, but not parts of His. Others would say that the natures are parts of His, but not properties, that is not attributes of His. These two gangs are going to have a little bit of a philosophical street fight together. Some think that the two natures are both parts and properties. Some people who believe in two natures think they're abstract objects, which basically means real things, but they can't be causes or effects. They can't enter into causal relations with anything. Some think that the two natures are each concrete, so real things that can be causes and can be affected. And there just isn't agreement uh, about all of these things. What happened was the tradition mandated to nature's language. And they didn't really tell you what it meant. And we're still paying the price for that. In the year 451, when they gave the definition of Chalcedon, both the quarreling sides that had two different approaches to trying to think coherently about the, the eternal logos and Jesus, both sides thought they had lost. They were told, you must say this. And they weren't given an interpretation. And so we're still arguing about like, what the right interpretation of that is. Myself, I don't think there is a right interpretation. So here we are back at the original inconsistent triad. I think it's non-negotiable that Jesus died. I think it's very clearly asserted in Scripture and assumed in Scripture that no fully divine being has ever died. Because... Essential immortality is a divine attribute. Okay, where's the weak link here? I think the weak link is in the claim that Jesus was fully divine. Now, I have to talk a little bit about mystery now. It wouldn't be right to leave that out entirely. If there were just as strong reason to believe two as there was to believe one three, you'd have a situation where You're just stuck. You've got all the reason in the world to believe each of these three things, and yet they look like they're inconsistent with one another. It looks like they just couldn't all be true. But maybe that's just because of our limited minds. Maybe that's just our cognitive limitations. You know, things are going to appear inconsistent to us when they aren't really. How are these consistent? Only God knows, because we sure don't, because these just look, for all the world, inconsistent to us. So should we say it's a mystery? Well, I don't think so, and the reason I don't think so is I think there are some real problems for two, problems that prevent us from being fully justified in believing two. One is the weak biblical arguments, and this is the number one blind spot I think a lot of particularly uh, evangelicals in America have. That, that's my tribe. That's who I'm familiar with. I think they vastly overestimate the biblical case in favor of two, Jesus is worshiped, he must be fully divine. Where does the Bible say that you have to be fully divine to be worshiped? Why can't God raise his human son to his right hand and put him in a position where every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father? Where's the requirement of fully divine there? I don't see it. Forgiving sins. You have to be fully divine being to forgive sins. Where is it written that God cannot authorize someone to forgive sins? If I am owed a loan payment, I could authorize you to forgive it. Say you're the bill collector I send you. Well, if the guy's really sorry, he cries, he gets on his knees, just tell him he doesn't know it anymore. But it's up to you. You know, If you, if you feel like forgiving him, if he's a punk, then just say, pay me in a week and walk out. Now, right, you're not announcing my forgiveness. I've invested you with that power. Whether this poor guy gets forgiven or not is now up to you. Does that mean that you're the owner of the debt? No, I'm the owner of the debt, but I gave you that power of forgiving him. The scripture does say, after Jesus forgives sins, I believe it's in the gospel according to Matthew, that people praised God because he'd given such authority to humans. So, not only does it not say you, don't, you have to be fully divine to forgive sins, it strongly implies that you can forgive sins if you've been given the authority. The argument that he's called God or he's called Lord, therefore he has to be fully divine. Look, do we even read the Bible? <laughs> because Jesus himself makes the point that people are called gods to whom the word of God came, And there are just really, I'm not even going to waste your time with the references. There are many cases where people other than God are addressed as God. And where people who are not the Lord are addressed as Lord or my Lord. So the arguments in favor of the full divinity, they had this idea in ancient times that you could detect a nature or a a type of thing by its typical operations, by like what it causes, okay? What kind of effects are coming out of it? And they looked at Jesus and, ooh, wow, divine teaching. kind of teaching that could only come from God. Ooh, divine miracles. Only God can raise the dead, heal the sick, and so on. Well, yeah, there was a divine being, all right. It was God, (laughs) the one who gave his spirit to his Messiah. Jesus said, it's the Father in me who does the works. So, yeah, there's all kinds of problems with the arguments for that. The second point that's widely overlooked is early Christianity. Did the early Christians think that Jesus was fully divine, Okay, where that means that Jesus has all the divine attributes? No, they didn't. It's a matter of record that leading mainstream theologians taught that Jesus was not eternal. Jesus doesn't know as much as the Father. Jesus doesn't have the same kind of power. Jesus isn't good in the same way. His goodness is dependent on the goodness of God, whereas God has his goodness independently. Who am I talking about? Mainstream theologians in the 100s and in the 200s, and even into the 300s. When they came to a text like, the Father is greater than I, they just said, yeah, see, greater. They didn't say greater with respect to his human nature, but equally great with respect to his divine nature. And when he said he didn't know the day or the hour, they said, see, yeah, only God is omniscient. Jesus is omniscient, he says he doesn't know something. You don't want to say he's a liar, right? So, yeah, you, you just don't find most early Christians saying that Jesus is fully divine. You see them saying things that go very clearly against that. Even after they're speculating about the preexistent logos and the logos is divine, even after they're calling Jesus our God and so on, they'll turn right around and say, oh, yeah, but the one true God is the Father. And only he is eternal. Only he has, is perfect in knowledge and so on. And as we've just looked at, this claim that Jesus is fully divine is just laden heavy with problematic speculations. It always was. If you read the history of Christology, it's quarreling from the Logos theories when they were introduced in, in about the middle or the first half of the 100s. It's quarreling all the way up, well, through the rest of ancient times and early medieval times. They kind of got sick of it. Even the famous definition of Chalcedon in 451 didn't settle. It just made it worse. Argument raged on for hundreds of years. You had the monosophytes still around. And uh, you're just up to your eyeballs in speculation here. And like I said, some of the smartest people in the world, these Christian philosophers, they are still trying to parse through and try to show how it makes sense. And uh, that's a bad sign. Because we shouldn't still be trying to make sense of it at this point. So I think the best move is to deny the second one. If you disagree, I urge you to search the scriptures and continue to think about it, because you're not going to, I think, discover how these three are consistent. I don't think you're suddenly going to discover a good reason to deny one or three. I just think the case is uh, clearer for one or three than it is for two. This brings us to an argument against the full divinity of Jesus, and this is an argument that's been presented many times, in particular by Sir Anthony Buzzard, (laughs) host of our conference here, such as in his book, Jesus Was Not a Trinitarian. These are three statements, but this time it's an argument, two premises and a conclusion. Jesus died, no fully divine being has ever died, therefore Jesus was not fully divine. If you want to know what we I mean by divine, just divine in the way that the one God is divine. I think this is a sound argument. I don't think it can be undercut in any way. Now, some people will find this disturbing. What? Don't you have to say God and man? Don't you have to say two natures? It's not only in the Creed of 451. It's in a lot of Protestant creeds, and not to mention Catholic and Orthodox, right? But this is just being a Protestant here. This is not rationalism, this is not, you know, irrational dislike of all mysteries or something like this. It's not refusing to believe things you can't explain. Where does explanation come into this here? I'm not trying to explain something, I'm just trying to understand what's being said. Here's one Protestant idea, scripture is sufficient for Christian belief and Christian practice. I think scripture is sufficient to tell you what to decide about those original three statements. I think it explicitly says he died. I think it implicitly but clearly says that no fully divine being has ever died. And so, yeah, Jesus is fully divine. That's out of luck. If you want to say he's divine in some other sense, okay, we can talk about that. But the fully divine has to go. And scripture trumps later Catholic traditions whenever they conflict. I think they conflict here. I'm Protestant. Have to go back to the sources. Some of these speculations haven't worked out. Well, let's go back to before the speculations, and that'll be a safer harbor. So that's all I have. Thanks. This week's Thinking Music has been Wake Up by Kai Engel. If you enjoyed this episode of the Trinity's podcast, don't forget to share on social media like Facebook, Pinterest, and Twitter. And if you're an iTunes user, why not give us a review there to help other people find this podcast?